For a second there, I thought uh, Pastor Crockett got a late call up. So, um, if Pastor Crockett, if you want to come up, I don't mind. I'm quite happy to use if you want to use my notes and you can. No, no, okay. So, um, looks like I'm stuck with it. Uh, Joel chapter one uh, is. I looked at this about probably six or eight weeks ago when I preached here uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, we looked at uh, the first three verses. So, if you uh, need a bit of a background of where we are this evening, I encourage you to go and have a listen to that to catch up in the series. But as a brief overview, uh, as if you're anything like me, I can't remember what I did uh, last night, never mind eight weeks ago. So a brief recap of those first few verses was that uh, we discovered we really don't know much about the book of the background of the book of Joel, who Joel is, where he was from or anything like that. Uh, as much as we can, uh, I guess, I suppose, or uh, have an educated guess, I suppose, or we suggest that the prophecy, his prophecy was sometime, was, was given sometime around 830 uh, BC to the southern kingdom of Judah around the time of Queen Athaliah uh, is when we, we believe it probably was written around then. We had a look at uh, Joel, how he called out to the old men to encourage them and say, hey, have you seen what's going on? To, to, to see if they could give a bit of background, but none of them had seen uh, what was about to be explained. And that uh, Joel also wanted to ensure that the writings of his book and the challenges that were given and the things that were talked about were not soon forgotten, that they were passed on throughout to the next generation so they could learn from the mistakes and from what their fathers and their forefathers went through. And that was where we got to. And this evening we're going to take up verse 4, but let's pray. And then we'll get into that. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, for the day. We thank you that we can come into your house and that, uh, Lord, we can sing praise and glory to you. And, uh, Lord, we pray now that you'll, Lord, calm our hearts. May we be able to focus on the Word of God. Lord, uh, show us where we can learn. Show us where we can grow. And, uh, Lord, challenge us, Lord, if we need challenging. And may we be receptive to, uh, Lord, Holy Spirit leading. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'll be with me as I speak. May I speak, uh, Lord, what you would have me speak. And may, uh, may your voice be heard, not mine. We pray now that you'll bless us as we, uh, Lord, get into our message in your name. Amen. Joel chapter uh, 1, verse 4 to 8 is where we'll start. It says, That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. And that which the locust hath left, hath the cankerworm eaten. And that which the cankerworm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. Awake ye drunkards, and weep. And how, all ye drinkers of wine, because the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation is come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a great lion. And he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof, are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. In these first few verses, uh, verses four to eight, sorry, I, we see what I've called the distress, the distress. Joel gets straight in by noting to Israel and explaining that there is a currently a great locust plague going on. In verse four there, it said, I'll reread it, it says, that which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. And that which the locust hath left, hath the cankerworm eaten. And that which the cankerworm hath left, 
hath the caterpillar eaten? Now, we're not exa- I'm not exactly sure from all the research I did exactly what the various, the palmer worm, the locust, and the canker worm have eaten. From what I understand, it's most likely the various stages of a locust. You've got the gnawing locust, and then the swarming locust, the crawling locust, and the consuming locust. Whether that is or isn't, there's a lot of different thoughts around what this exactly is. But we know that it was a locust plague and that from what we've seen throughout history, locust plagues are very devastating. In ancient times in the Middle East, a locust plague was often referred to as the army of God because they were this great thing that they came in and they just destroyed everything in their path. The story is told in 1915, I believe it's a true story, of a, a devastating plague of locusts that, covers, that covered much of what is modern-day Israel and Syria. They say that uh, it first started around early March and that it started out with these, these, these clouds of locusts coming through, so much so that they blocked out the sun. But this was only the beginning because they said as this plague went on, the female locusts started to lay their eggs. And they would lay hundreds, if not thousands, at a time. Witnesses suggest that within about a square metre, there were were as many as 75,000 eggs in just that one little square metre. And that from there, in just a short period of time, a week or two, the young would hatch. And the young locusts resembled large ants. And from there, even though they couldn't fly, they started to hop along and start started devouring whatever was in their path. And they started off by marching about 100 or 200 metres a day. They couldn't go very far, but that was enough because they were stripping everything. And then as they went, they grew and got bigger. And and throughout the stages they went until they got to a full-size locust and they could fly. And the devastation continued and it would just rolled on and on and on. And and from what I understand, it's, it's not unusual for these locust plagues to be several kilometres wide and several kilometres deep of just a swarm of locusts and anything and everything that was in their path was consumed. And this is what was happening in Israel. This locust plague was consuming everything. So, so uh, devastating was it that Joel goes on in verse 5 to, to call out an interesting group. Read verse 5, it says, Awake ye drunkards and weep, and howl. All ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Normally when there's an issue in a town, the drunks are the least affected. They're not, they're not worried about what's going on. You don't normally see the drunks at political rallies worrying about you know, who's going to be part of the next leadership. You don't normally see the drunks. Why? Because they're drunk. They're only worried about where they're going to get their next drink. But this plague that had gone through was so devastating for the land of Israel that even the drunks, even the lowest, that normally would only be worried about where their next drink was coming from, are going to be affected. The great, the small, the rich, the poor were all being affected by this locust plague because everything had been wiped out. There was no wine left for them to get drunk on. Joel wanted to point out that this was a serious locust plague. This wasn't just something that was just going through one little part of the country and that it was just a tiny bit that was going to affect just a few people. 
he was saying, hey, this is a serious thing. This is affecting the whole country, every single person. And he goes on in verse 6 to explain a bit more about this locust plague. It says, For a nation is come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. The word nation there is applied to this locust plague. He's given, this, he's given us this, this idea to just show the size and the ferocity of this assault. It talks about how it's a strong force. That word strong means they're an irresistible force or something that you can't repel it. And then it talks about it's without number. Now, another time that a, a, a similar example of this is given is back in Judges chapter 7. We're not going to go there. But when they're describing the Midianite army, how that was this great innumerable army that was strong and it covered the land. And that is the idea of the, that Joel is trying to get across with this plague, that it was, it was this army of force. And then he talks about how it had the teeth of a lion. And we all know, if you've ever watched anything, any documentaries on lions, there's not very much that gets away from a lion. And when a lion goes in for its prey, it takes everything. It's, it, it's strong, it's destructive, and you can't withstand the lion. And so I think you can get the picture of what Joel's trying to get across here is that this plague is, it's like they're facing an army that's totally destructive and that they've got nothing that they can do to defend themselves. Verse 7 goes on to give an idea of how this army has affected, this army of locusts has affected their town, their land. It says, He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. The vine and the fig tree have been stripped bare. If, you're, um, if you've ever seen a, a tree that's been debarked or something, it's white, isn't it? And when a tree's been debarked, it doesn't last very long and it dies. And that is what Joel is saying here, is that this plague has come through and every single thing that is edible has been eaten, so much so that it's killed all the trees and all the various vines and fruits, and they're all dead. And in verse 8... He goes on that little bit further just to drill down how serious this is. It says there, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The picture here is of a young lady who's just got married. And she's on her honeymoon with her husband and the husband dies. You could understand the grief and the emotion that would come with a young bride just losing her, her newly married husband. I, it's serious. This isn't something that's just a, you know, teenage lovers, they've split up and then, you know, a week later they've got another boyfriend or girlfriend. This is serious. This is important. Now, Brother Kaufman, I've got nothing against dentists, but I'm sure we've all been to the dentist and they pull out their needles to give you a, you know, a, a bit of deadening in the mouth and they, what do they always say? Don't worry, it's just going to be a little sting. And then they get in and, you know, they, they might be pulling a tooth out and I, I know how fish feels when they're trying to get a tooth out. You know, you're, you're in the chair, you're getting thrown around. Dentists downplay the pain, don't they? They minimise the pain. Oh, it's going to be okay, it's not going to hurt. It'll just be a little while, a bit of Panadol and you'll be fine. Often what they mean is that 
yeah, this is actually going to really hurt you. And for the privilege, I'm going to sting you with a really big bill as you walk out the front door. Joel here, in describing this plague, is not being like the dentist trying to downplay it. By using this, uh, this example of, a, of a, uh, a young bride, he's saying, this is serious. What you're going through is very serious and there's a really good reason why you're going through it. He didn't want them to belittle it and just push this to the side. This was important that Israel knew why they were going through this time. So having seen the current distress, let's have a look at the discouragement. In verses 9 to 12, it says, The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord ministers, mourn. The field is wasted, the land mourneth, for the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen, how, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, the fig tree languisheth, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. In verse 9, Joel goes on to describe how this plague had taken a great effect on every part of Israel, the, the uh, Judah's life. It says that the meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. Now, the meat offering here was not the offering of actual animals. The meat offering here was the meal offering of the, the various, uh, well, of the corn and the barley mixed with the oil, and they would offer that. And so much so had this locust plague affected them that there was no longer any meal and oil to offer as a sacrifice. And this, this brought the priests to mourning because they could not do their job how it had been outlined. They could not offer these sacrifices. And this had a flow-on effect because if the priests are in mourning, those who were growing these crops would then also be feeling the pressure because they had nothing to offer. In verse 10 and 11, we won't reread it, but it talks about how the corn is wasted and there was no oil, it, it languisheth, and, the, and that the, barley, the wheat and the barley harvest were perished. There was nothing there, and that brought great shame to the farmers because they had nothing to present. In verse 12, it got so bad that all the fruit trees... The, the pomegranate and the palm tree and the apple trees and all the trees of the field uh, were withered. Because of this plague, it had stripped everything. There was nothing left. And it led to great shame. In the end of verse 12 there, it says, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Now, I don't know if you're like me, especially men. I don't know if you're like me, but Hannah knows when I'm hungry. She says I'm hangry. She'll there'll be times where she'll, I'll be doing something and she'll just know that I'm, I'm a bit grumpy because I haven't eaten in a while. So she'll ask me, she'll say, hey, when was the last time you ate something? You need to eat something. And so you could understand that these, the people of Judah, they had no food and the joy of going to the temple to give sacrifices was no longer there either because they had nothing to sacrifice. And so Judah were in a really bad way. 
this, this locust plague had brought them really low. And Joel wanted to make sure that this sorrow that they had was used for good. And we see that in verses 13 and 14, what I've called the, uh, the delure or the grief or sorrow. I bet you you didn't know delure was a word. It is a word, I can guarantee you that. So, the delure, it means grief or sorrow. In verse 13 and 14, it says, Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests, how, ye ministers of the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withheld from the house of your God. Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders, and all the inhabitants of the house of the land under the house of the Lord your God, and cry, Unto the Lord. Joel calls on the priests, the religious leaders, to lead the nation in repentance. It says there, where it says there, to um, lament ye priests and howl ye ministers of the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. Joel here is saying, hey, you need to get ready to do the work of repentance. You need to get your hearts right. You need to get before God because you're going to need to lead the nation in repentance from their, their wrongdoing. And Joel goes on in verse 14 to give the outline of what the whole nation needed to do to, to be part of this repentance. And I think there's some really good examples in this that we can learn about when we need to repent of something and when, when, it, when we need to get our heart right with God, we can learn from this. First there it says, sanctify a fast. Now, fasting is one of those things that there's a lot of different opinions on where, when you should fast, how you should fast, so on and so forth. But the point he's getting across here is that Israel were at a point, or Judah were at a point, that they needed to make getting right with God so vital that it was, eat, it was more important than eating. He wanted to make sure that they understood that getting their hearts right with God was the most important thing they have, that denying the temporal or the earthly things was far more important so they could get their hearts right with God. And sometimes we need to do that. We need to get to a point where we can say, Lord, we need to put aside some of the earthly things that are distracting us or some earthly things that are taking our time away from God. And we need to focus on the eternal things, the eternal things that bring God glory. The second thing that he said was call a solemn assembly. The call was to get God's people together. Now we get together as a church for a lot of different reasons. We get together uh, at church, we get together for various ministries, we get together for fellowship, we get together for fun, we get together for uh, serious meetings. Uh, this meeting was not about fellowship. This meeting was about getting your heart right with God. The word solemn there means characterised by deep sincerity. Joel said they needed to get together as a, as a nation to be sincere and confess their sins because this was a serious problem. The assembly was to be one that was genuine honest and open, a meeting with the sole purpose of confessing their sins. 
And we sometimes need to do that when, when we need to get our heart right. We need to come into the Lord's house with a genuine, open and honest heart to confess our sin, to get it right with the Lord. The third thing, it says there, and gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. The third thing was to get into the house of your God. It says there, into the house of the Lord your God. Come to the place where you know God was going to be waiting for you. God was going to be waiting there to talk to you. And you know, in our modern day especially, people are looking for anywhere and everywhere to have their spiritual needs met. You only have to go online to see all the different things that are going on there. And, but the house of God is still vitally important in meeting the Lord. And just like Judah had to do, I think it's important for us to have the house of God as a vital part of our lives and of our repentance. We can learn so much from the Lord. The priests, Joel had commanded the priests to get ready for this. They were there ready to help. So it was important that they were in the house of God. And finally, it says there, and cry unto the Lord. After they'd, they'd had their fast and their assembly, as part of that, they would have simply and earnestly plead to the Lord for mercy. They were in a bad way and the only thing that was going to help them was God's mercy. And so they needed to cry out to the Lord. This wasn't just a little, this wasn't just a little quick, Lord help me, amen, sort of prayer. This was an earnest prayer. This was a prayer of giving your heart over to the Lord and, and giving the Lord all you've got. And Joel knew that God was where they needed to go for their mercy to help them out of this situation. We won't read it, but in Joel chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, the Lord had pro has promised that he will help them out of this situation if they called on him. We'll look at that in a, in a future message. But Joel knew that God was in control. And that's why Joel knew it was so important to go to the Lord for his mercy through this way. And I think we would do well when we need to repent of something to put this plan into action because it will help us seek the Lord and, and the Lord will help us because he is where we need to go for mercy. But having seen this plan that Joel gave them, Joel goes on to describe the God that is behind what is going on. And I've got that, the deity, in verses 15 and 16. It says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat cut off from before your eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of your God. The day of the Lord. Judah were in the midst of the day of the Lord. That was what was going on. They were, the day of the Lord generally refers to the day when God writes the wrongs done against him. And Judah are in the midst of this day. God's anger, God is long-suffering and merciful and slow to anger. We know all that. But sometimes God's anger runs his long-suffering and mercy does run out towards some people. And at this day, Joel, the, the lords had run out of patience with Israel and they, and God was righting the wrongs done 
by Judah towards him. A man by the name of David Levy puts the day of the Lord like this. The phrase the day of the Lord has reference to the direct intervention of God in the, in the affairs of man. The theme has a twofold meaning. First, the phrase day of the Lord refers to God's judgment, which came upon Judah during and after Joel uh, penned this prophecy. And that's what this day means. It can also have the meaning in reference to the tribulation period in which will culminate with Christ coming in glory and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. We know through Pastor Crockett's series on Revelation that the day of the Lord in the tribulation is uh, great and it is far, far, far worse than what Judah are experiencing at this time. God's day is not something you want to be a part of. But unfortunately, Judah, uh, due to their sin, Judah were facing this day in full force. They had rebelled despite all the warnings, and this was the result. They were suffering because of the Lord's day. And as we read through, you think it can't get any worse for Judah, but the day of the Lord is so terrible that it does get worse on them. In verse 17 to 20, we see the drought. The drought. The seed, uh, verse 17, the seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up. The fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Verse 17 paints really a crippling picture of a drought. The locust plague we would think of would be more than bad enough. Throw on top of that a great drought and Judah were really suffering. The garners there is talking about the silos or the, you know, the, the grain storage. They were empty. There was nothing in them. The barns were broken down due to neglect. They weren't needed. The, the seed couldn't even grow. I uh, didn't know Darren and Michelle were going to be here, but I was out their place, I think it was about April this year, and... Darren had just sowed a field of, was it oats? Was it oats? Hoping that he would uh, get some winter crop in so during the the cooler months their uh, cattle had feed. Well, I saw Michelle sent a photo through probably about a month ago and the place due to the drought that we're having here at the moment was 10 times worse than it was in April. None of the oats had come up, none of that had happened Exactly the picture that they're describing here is what Darren and their farmers are going through in uh, western New South Wales and, and Queensland at the moment. The seeds don't, don't even grow. You could throw as many seeds as you want, but there's no moisture. There's nothing in the soil for them to get into. And so even if they had seed after this locust plague, nothing was growing. It was so bad that the beasts of the fields, in verse 18 and 20, we're not going to read them for sake of time, but the beasts of the field were groaning. They, their normal spots that they would go to to get their food and to get their, their nutrients, it was not there. I'm sure Darren's seen that 
at the moment with the, the cattle. You know, you only have to look at the, on the news or whatever and the cattle are so much thinner because they've just got no, there's no food anywhere. Even in verse 20, it talks about the wild beasts. Uh, Darren, again, out at Darren's place, everywhere you go, there's the wild animals are coming in search of food because they've got nothing left either. There's, there's no food, there's no water, there's, there's nothing left for them to eat. And these beasts are crying. They're, they're perplexed. They're, they don't understand why they're suffering through this. And just when it seemed it couldn't get any worse, verse 19 says, O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The plague, the locust plague, the drought, and now fire. You know, you could, un- you could imagine after a locust plague has been through and stripped everything, you've got all these dead trees around, it wouldn't take much to start a fire. And any speck of life that's left has been sucked up by this drought and fire. Judah, the whole nation, young, sm- young and old, rich and poor, great and small, their herds, everything was suffering because of their sin. They were in, horrend- they were in a horrendous state because they were suffering against the day of the Lord. And you know, I look around, I look around our world today. I look in our churches, I look in our families, and I see so many people who are in a state like Judah. Sin has left their life in a great distress. They're empty, they're barren, there's nothing there. Their lives are just miserable. Just like the people of uh, Judah there where it says in verse 5, joy is withered away from the sons of men. People are searching because sin has corrupted them. And for our sixth point, our distress, the distress that is caused on so many people because of sin is harrowing and it haunts them. But thankfully, we are not called to be in that position. We're not called to be empty and distressed. We're called to repentance. Uh, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Children, older people, men, women, mothers, fathers, all your different races, rich and poor, they're all suff- many of them are suffering through this all because they haven't trusted the Lord as their saviour. We know Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we're all condemned for that sin. We're all going to face judgment, as Hebrews 9.27 says. But we know that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and that we don't have to stay in that position. We don't have to stay in that position of defeat and and harm. The Lord wants us 
to live that abundant life. We just have to call on to him to, re- uh, to repentance. Just like Israel were called to do. That's what we should do. But maybe you're already saved. And maybe you're not like Israel. Maybe you're already saved, sorry. But maybe you're like Israel and that you've let sin control your life. And I see Christians everywhere that are barren. Their life's like a drought because they've let sin control them. John chapter 10 verse 10 says, The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill and to destroy. I am come that ye may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The life that Jesus offers us through salvation and through having a right life with him is abundant. The total opposite of the life that's displayed through the the nation of Judah here. They were crippled. Christ wants to give us an abundant life. And I don't know where you stand this evening, but maybe your life is a bit like Judas. You've let sin come in and you've let sin control you. And that fruitful life, the life of abundance that Christ can offer us is lost in drought, has been lost in the plagues that come our way because we've let Satan rule our lives, not the Lord. I had other stuff to say here, but, you know, the Lord wants us to have an abundant life. And that takes us lamenting over our sin. That takes us to cry unto the Lord. It takes us to forsake our earthly, our temporal things, to focus on the eternal things. And I don't know where you stand this evening, but maybe your life is that barren life. If you want that abundant life, I encourage you, if you haven't trusted the Lord, ask him into your heart. Come and see me or Pastor Mitchell or Pastor Crockett and we'll show you from the Bible how you can know the Lord as your saviour so you can have that abundant life. Or maybe there's something that's inhibiting you and the Lord's been trying to get your attention for a long period of time like he did with Judah, sending prophets and preachers and you just won't listen to him and your life has ended up barren and drought. Maybe you need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I need to get rid of this sin. Follow that plan in in verse 14 and get your heart right with him so you can get rid of that drought, get rid of that plague and have an abundant life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the day. We thank you, dear Lord, uh, for the example of Judah. Lord, we don't ever want to go there. We don't ever want to be, uh, have to go through the chastising of the Lord. So Lord, may you search our hearts and show us uh, where we need to change. Lord, if there's anyone here who hasn't trusted you as their saviour, Lord, may they do that. And Lord, if there's anyone suffering with a barren life, a drought-filled life, a, a life that's, that's constantly plagued by sin, May, Lord, you convict them and may, Lord, they get their hearts right with you. We pray now that you'll be with us as we close in your name. Amen.